27 through 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea of Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And then after three days, rise again. And he said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of God with the holy angels. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The Gospel of the Lord. I don't know about you, but this is one of my favorite texts in the entire Bible, which is probably a strange commentary on my thought process. I mean, I know it isn't a particularly comforting passage in the, in the classical sense of some of the Psalms. I mean, when I read it, I don't feel peace, necessarily. I'm just... I guess I'm weird that way. And yet this passage is central to our understanding about who Jesus is and about who we are as his followers. It's certainly pivotal for Mark. In the first eight chapters of the gospel, Mark locates Jesus I mean, in all kinds of strange places among really strange people. And that in itself makes a sort of theological statement about the reign of God, which is always to be found in the back alleys and dive bars where the respectable people rarely ever go, which is to say where 
the sensible person would least expect it. Now the next eight chapters in Mark's Gospel find Jesus en route to and then having arrived in Jerusalem, which is a not-so-strange place, peopled with the powerful and the influential. Now the contrasts are fascinating between the first part of the book and the last part of the book. I mean, Jesus spends the first part of Mark's Gospel in Nebraska and then he sort of takes a fateful journey to Washington, D.C. And our text for today stands sort of at the threshold, in between, that point at which, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus makes his first move on his journey to Jerusalem. He's been here, and now he's there. It's portentous. It's a big deal, right? And the narrative sort of picks up speed from here. Dr. Albert Outler tells a story about the, the, the warrior king, Charles XII, who back in 1716 visited a little village seaport named Ishtad in the south of Sweden. And King Charles arrived unexpectedly at the village church as they were beginning to worship. And when the pastor realized that the king was in the congregation, he he was kind of vexed about what he should do. I mean, should he preach the message that he'd prepared, or should he take this opportunity to recognize and praise King Charles and the royal family for their leadership of Sweden? You know, maybe call him the biggest, greatest king in history, a tremendous leader, probably done a better job than any king ever. So he decided ultimately to lay aside his sermon and just sort of suck up to the king. And after the service, the king, a, a, a man of great integrity, greeted the pastor uh, on the way out, and then he left. Not long afterwards, the church received a special gift from the king, and the pastor called the congregation together to share the opening of this gift. And when the large box was finally opened there was this life-size crucifix in it and attached to the cross was a note from the king that said let this crucifix hang on the pillar opposite the pulpit so that all who stand there might be reminded of their proper subject ouch now we, of course, have read the final chapter, and we know what happens when Jesus finally gets to Jerusalem, as did Mark's readers themselves know. So we can't help but read our text for today with a sense of foreboding. I mean, we know what it's ultimately going to cost Jesus as he makes his final prescient speech found in our text for today. So we cover this tough passage once again because somewhere at the center of it all is what we confess about who Jesus is and who we are now because of him. Our gospel this morning looms as a constant reminder of what is for all, all of us at stake in our faith. 
The cross stands at the end of this journey for Jesus, and it is the cross that Jesus commands his disciples, those who want to follow him, to take up. Now, according to Mark, Jesus knew as he walked down the narrow path that day that there was no way for him to be faithful to the purposes of God and to avoid that cross. He knew that his challenge of the powerful on behalf of the powerless couldn't help but appear threatening to the ruling authorities. I mean, he knew the special kind of death that had been reserved for Messiahs. That is, for those who would presume to challenge Caesar. In one of my favorite books by David James Duncan, called The Brothers K, the family is discussing uh, a little girl with a cleft palate who goes to their church, and her name is Vera. And Vera's parents won't let her have the operation to fix her lip and her palate because it is, as they say, her cross to bear. Now, one of the brothers, Peter, observes that there are some crucial things that Vera's parents are forgetting about crosses. One was that Jesus was nailed by his enemies to his, not by Mary and Joseph. And another, he said, was that it killed him. Christ's cross killed him. We've got to remember what crosses are for. They're not just decorations on steeples. They're murder weapons. Same as guns or gas chambers or electric chairs, only much, much slower. And so Vera's parents were one of two things, according to Peter. They were either fools without the slightest idea of what Christianity or crosses are, or they were unbelievably evil people. See, Jesus isn't talking about some subjective experience, some inconvenience like being nearsighted or having an uncle who's an overbearing loudmouth that nobody wants to sit next to at Thanksgiving dinner. See, the cross is something that we decide to bear, something we take up, not, not, not some physical infirmity, our aches and pains. This is a voluntary thing. Not something thrust upon us by genetics or lack of aptitude or just sheer bad luck. Things over which we have no control. The crosses we bear, like Jesus before us, have to do with the consequences that we suffer in our determination not to stay silent in the face of injustice. The pain and suffering that we embrace as we welcome those who try to live like Jesus by saying yes to the vulnerable and the destitute while saying no to those who operate the machinery of the death-dealing systems of domination. See, in Christianity, the cross is central to what it means to be faithful. And I'd like to be able to tell you otherwise, that, that sort of crosses are part of the optional travel package, but in fact... They're both the destination and the journey, as well as the baggage that we strap to our backs along the way. I mean, it's a fairly bracing bit of information to hear from the cruise director, but Jesus is really not a very good salesman. 
He's the sort of anti-Zig Ziglar. As important theologian James Cone argues, we cannot find liberating joy in the cross by spiritualizing it, by taking away its message of justice in the midst of powerlessness. Suffering, death. See, the cross is as a locus of divine revelation is not good news for the powerful, for those who are comfortable with the way things are, or for anyone whose understanding of religion is aligned with power. For them, of course, it is bad news. According to James Nairay, crucifixion was an institution of humiliation, torture, and execution designed to deal with the people considered the most threatening to the establishment and its interests. That is to say, as Richard Horsley points out, insofar as crucifixion was the form of execution that the Romans used on recalcitrant slaves or political agitators in the provinces, Jesus must have been executed because he was at least thought to be a rebel against the Roman imperial order. That is, he was executed as a political actor. In other words, the cross was something that people got nailed to as a form of capital punishment for being political subversives. Not a handy piece of jewelry, perfect for accessorizing a smart evening dress. It is precisely this barbarity that the 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche latches onto in his famous book, The Genealogy of Morals. In it, Nietzsche criticizes Christianity as a religion of servitude and resignation. In contrast to the pacifism of Jesus, Nietzsche prized the manly virility of the ancient Greeks and their heroic culture, which he considered the, the, the pinnacle of human moral achievement. According to Nietzsche, Christianity successfully won the PR battle by convincing people that moral good consists of things like kindness and piety and humility, which he identifies as the last refuge of the impotent. The perfect symbol for this morality of the weak, Nietzsche believes, is the cross, which he says has a debilitating narcotic power with its ghastly paradox of a crucified God. In the cross, he laments, is the certainty that the pacifism of Jesus has now triumphed over all other nobler values. Now Nietzsche rightly saw that the power of Christianity didn't come from making straight up claims to power by, by, by trying to be the boss, by supplanting the boss, but rather precisely from refusing to make those claims in favor of embracing the vulnerability of serving the vulnerable, the, the highest demonstration of which comes in the cross and his willingness to suffer the consequences of challenging a government that abused and exploited those people. So, more accurately than Christians often, Nietzsche recognized that at the very heart of Christianity sits the cross, 
a preference for what appears to the world as weakness, peace over violence, gentleness over cruelty, welcome over exclusion, love over hatred. Now, where, where Nietzsche and I disagree isn't over whether this is true, but over whether this vulnerability is a good thing or not. Nietzsche says, no, I say, yes. Followers of Jesus do think the vulnerability of serving the vulnerable is a good thing. But Nietzsche's right that the cross has been seen throughout history not as an invitation to an adventure, but as a, as a symbol of, of, of domesticated stability and an ode to resignation and acquiescence. But it's possible that in domesticating the cross, we no longer sense either its offensiveness or, in fact, its true glory. See, in today's text, Jesus not only says that he's walking toward the cross, he invites us to go with him. He promises us that where the crucified are, there he will also be. See, if, if we're following Jesus, we're walking, you and I, toward the cross. But we're not walking the path of the cross alone. The call is to take up our crosses and follow behind Jesus, with Jesus. He's walked down that road toward the cross, and he walks down that road again and again whenever the faithful bear their crosses, challenging the oppressor on behalf of the oppressed, listening to the voiceless, seeing those who go unnoticed, forgotten. Because having borne it before us, he's able to bear it with us. Now, is today's text about the cross good news or bad news? Well, I mean, it sounds like bad news, right? The worst of all possible news. In a society in which pain and sacrifice are avoided and denied at all costs, in which any suffering is considered unfair and unnecessary, in which we're taught that progress is steadily marching forward and that technology has the potential to create a world in which pain of all sorts will eventually be eradicated. But the cross disabuses us of the simplistic notion that the meaning of life revolves around our comfort or our pleasure, around getting my needs met the way I think they need to be met. But what if the cross, at the same time that it delivers bad news of suffering and sacrifice, offers us good news as well? I mean, what if the cross, as fearsome and terrifying as it is, is the very place where we meet Jesus? I mean, what if the cross allows us to consider that cross-carrying is not an individual but a team sport? I mean, even Jesus needed help lugging his lumber up the road, right? Not only do we find Jesus struggling under the load, but we find one another there struggling alongside of him. Moreover, being near Jesus puts us near the poor, the disenfranchised, the powerless, and that's good news. Because since we've embraced the cross, we've already embraced 
powerlessness, not as a strategy for effective living, but as a way of life that seeks, above all else, to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And wherever he goes, is there are bound to be the folks who often get left behind. The people who nobody cares much about, it seems. I mean, if we want to know where Jesus is going... We only have to look where, where it is that children go to bed afraid and hungry. Where women are told by men with power over them to accept their abuse. Where black people live in terror that they'll lose their children to the brutality inflicted by the people sworn to protect and serve them. Where immigrants live in fear that they'll come home one day to find somebody missing with no idea where they are where refugees huddle in camps hoping for a chance at a life that doesn't include guns and bombs and being carted away by the authorities in the dead of the night, where LGBTQ people fear the violence and vindictiveness of those who claim to be serving God. We don't have to wonder anymore whether we have any responsibility for our siblings, those who can't stand up any longer by themselves. We don't have to ask whether... Those who've been forgotten, abused, kicked to the curb are our people any longer. Because through the grace of the cross, we're able to see not competitors in the food chain, not threats to our individual projects and desires, not nuisances for which we have neither the time nor the energy, but family. When we look around through the prism of the cross, what we see everywhere are people who belong to our family, the family to which we belong, the human family that God created and continues to love, in spite of the fact that we often act as if there is nothing left worth loving. Even so, God loves us. Ethel Gill made a really interesting comment when he said that one of the profound paradoxes of Christianity is to be found in the fact that the one who was not only uh, was not able to carry his own cross is the very one who enables us to carry ours. See the the, the cross isn't optional equipment for the journey of faith but we don't have to bear it alone we bear our crosses together which is a good thing because as Father Daniel Berrigan famously pointed out if you want to follow Jesus you better look good on wood Amen Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.